Amen. Well, the title of my lesson this morning is, Am I a Prophet? And I guess the question I would ask each of you is I ask myself, Am I a Prophet? Are you a Prophet? Any Prophets? Hmm. Well, okay. Well, let me spell it out for you. P-R-O-F-I-T. Yeah, I've seen a lot of eyebrows going, not Elijah, not Elisha, Jeremiah, Isaiah, who were prophets, P-R-O-P-H-E-T-S. Am I a P-R-O-F-I-T to God? Ask yourself that. Are you? Job 22.2. Can a man be profitable unto God? As he that is wise is profitable unto himself. Well, I, I guess I'm going to have to... Here, boys, if you wouldn't just... Okay, go ahead and set it down here, so... All right. They tell me putting a blanket over him would keep him quiet. Evidently, that does not work, so... Um, Dustin, why don't you go ahead and try and feed him? Oh, well, that works. Okay. Y'all are probably wondering what that was about. That would be a common sound at one point in time on the Day of Atonement. That would be a sound that they would rejoice over. That one right there. Now, for those of you that may be freaking out, thinking I've brought goats into the sanctuary, I have not. It's called Bluetooth speaker. Now, as you also see here, I guess you could say I have two kids with me. Now, though, these two kids do represent something, and much like Mr. Benson was discussing earlier, I mean, they, they're not goats. But uh, they re represent, as I said, the, the two kids that we, uh, if, if you look in uh, Numbers chapter 29, if you young men would please carry that out now, and thank you for your participation. So, but the point that I was trying to make with that, and I should start this here, is to bring into remembrance what was once a, an occurrence on Atonement Day. And that, that was a huge occurrence is the bringing in of, of the two kid goats. So, but we'll get to that here in a little bit later. So if we look at Romans chapter 3 verse 12 as well, it says they are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. Now remember I asked you in the beginning, am I a prophet? And are you a prophet? There is none that doeth good, no, not one. And in Luke chapter 17, verse 10 as well, we have, so likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which I com are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which is our duty to do. Now we have arrived today at the Day of Atonement. And now for the false Israel, pseudo-Israel, this is a 10-day period that they call the Days of Awe or also the days of repentance. Now, to be, they believe that God has books that he writes name in. I believe we could agree that there's uh, the Lamb's Book of Life as well. I don't think that's quite what they're uh, insinuating. Now, they believe that he is writing down who will live and who will die, who will have a good life and who will have a bad life for the next year. Now, that sounds like who has been naughty or nice, doesn't it? Yeah. It does not sound scriptural. Now. They believe that you can change your course, you can change your whole life course throughout this whole next year by what you do the 10 days preceding the Day of Atonement. Now, they call it, uh, well, prayer, good deeds, and charity. And I basically sum it up as they believe that in 10 days out of 365 that you can plead or bribe God to get back into the live column, because that's what it's all about. They just believe it's live or die. So, and that's not scriptural. 
Now, I brought this up because if I'm going to say that something is not in Scripture, then the logical question is, what is in Scripture? Now, Atonement Day, as pastors brought up, it is the day of covering or propitiation, as they like to say. And propitiation or propitiate is to appease. So basically, I guess you could say that's to uh, much like they've tried to say here, if, if they have a, they appease God in the right way for the next year, you know, they'll kind of like bribe God to uh, be good to them. And that is, that is not what it is. So as it is a day of covering as we've just, uh, now this is the, a chief annual feast day in Israel. And it's on the 10th day of the seventh month. And in the, the month that it's now, I believe they call it Tishri. Um, the ritual is detailed in Leviticus 16, much like Pastor uh, Benson brought up this morning. And if we could, I'd like us to just open our Bibles, if we would, this morning to Leviticus chapter 16. And we'll reference that and now and then. There may be times you want to glance at it some and uh, refresh yourself on exactly what, uh, what occurred. But in Leviticus 16, we have the Day of Atonement spoken of there. And I will start in, I'll start in verse one, actually. It said, the Lord spake unto the Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered before the Lord and died. And the Lord said unto Moses, speak unto Aaron, thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not. For I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. And thus shall Aaron come into the holy place. And he lists out how I should come. And then in verse 4, it speaks of his attire. That he shall put on the holy linen coat, and shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh, and shall be girded with a linen girdle, and with a linen mitre shall he be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water and so put them on. He has to wash his flesh and then put these linen garments on. Now these linen garments uh, weren't necessarily always, he had the other attire that the holy priest wore. If you remember, he has the breastplate and, and the rest of his attire and that was not worn. Uh, and the common belief is, is that basically in, in dressing, he dressed, I guess you could say, as, as a common person. It's not so much the status of his position, but then in dressing in, in the linen, that he was as sinful as anyone else of Israel, that he did not have a higher position than they when it comes to sinning. And as it says here, that he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats. And that is why I had the smaller cage and tried the best I could to find some goat sounds and make it sound somewhat realistic. So I don't know if that come off or not, but... Uh, it, that was the sin offering. And then it had a one ram for a burnt offering. Now, if we could, I'd like to go to Numbers chapter 29. Because Leviticus 16 here just kind of hops in on what, uh, what was the high priest was, was commanded to do. But there was, there was other activities that had went on even before this, this had begun. And in Numbers chapter 29, I'll begin in verse 7. And it says, And ye shall have the tenth, on the tenth day of this seventh month, and holy convocation, ye shall afflict your souls, ye shall not do any work therein, but ye shall offer a burnt offering unto the Lord for a sweet savor, one young bullock, one ram, and seven lambs of the first year, and they shall be to you without blemish. And their meat offering shall be flour mingled with oil, three-tenths deal to a bullock, and two-tenths deals to one ram and the several tenths deal for one lamb throughout the seven lambs, and one kid of the goats for a sin offering, besides the sin offering of atonement and the continual burnt offering and the meat offering of it and their drink offerings. So the, the priests were busy, very busy on that day. There was more than just happened with these two goats. Now, when the temple or tabernacle, as they called it, actually still existed, he entered this once a year, as we've read in Scripture, to atone for the sins of Israel. Now, something that I've had some people ask me and such is, and I've asked myself, is, is there any references to this necessarily in the New Testament? Is there a New Testament where it would speak of this day being held and, and, and discussed? 
Not necessarily that I've found. Uh, and I could be mistaken. I mean, somebody uh, knows more about that. Please uh, inform me of that. But I do know that in Acts chapter 27, verse 9, if we could turn there. And this is speaking of Paul during his uh, voyage towards Rome. And it said in, uh, and I'm in uh, Rome, or sorry, Acts chapter 27, verse 9. And it said, now when there was much time was spent and when sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already passed, Paul admonished them. Where it says here that because the fast was already passed, I also have in the notation out here in the side of my Bible, it says the fast was on the 10th day of the seventh month. Now, I look trying to find any Roman declared fasts. There isn't any that I could find, especially during that particular time. The time of year that, as we know, the fast would have occurred would have been a time as well that would not have been smooth sailing. So it would seem to affirm that Paul and those had waited for the ship to leave until after as they, some have called it the great fast, but it's not much of a reference, but it is a reference to it. And I, I wanted to put that into the record today that it was still being held. So if we're in Leviticus 16 here, and that's obviously the, the most relevant passages concerning this being an annual fast, uh, we have what they call the legal enactments which are involved. And basically, we also have Exodus 30, verse 10, which that refers to making atonement annually on the horns of the altar of incense. And if we could, let's just, we'll go through Leviticus chapter 16 here a little more. If you still have your finger there, we'll turn to there. And I'll start in verse uh, 7. Beings we've had the goats already have brought in here, but it actually I'll start on verse six. And it said, Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself and make an atonement for himself and for his house. Now, what I'd like to for everybody to picture in their mind and stuff is this, this word bullock, you know, how, how big was this bullock? You know, I mean, I, I've seen some bulls and they can get pretty big, you know, and how hard would that have been to have handled as well? Uh, the, you know, this wasn't uh, exactly an easy day, I don't believe, any time they were, they were doing sacrifices. And it could very well have been a, a small bull, uh, but it doesn't necessarily state that. Uh, some of the commentaries that I read state that they believe a bullock was around a year old or so, which is still a pretty good-sized animal. So, And as we've had many of our uh, congregation members and uh, friends of ours that we know, uh, this year has been a tough year with bulls. Um, so we know the damage that they can cause, the danger that there was there. But he had to make an atonement for himself uh, and then for his house. And then if we get into verse 7, we have the two goats. And obviously they were presented before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats. And there's a lot of discussion as far as what did the lots, you know, was it the... Uh, uh, Thummim and Purim and, and, and that. And they're basically, I, from what I've determined, most people have just decided that it is, has to do with just kind of like casting, as we say, lots. There was just two things that were different from one from another and one got it and one didn't. Or, you know, or, or, uh, I'm not real sure what, what may have transpired there, but one goat was to die and one goat was to die as well, very painfully, most likely. Now, it says that Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Uh, and that's why a lot of people believe that there was, there was one mark, this was to be the Lord's and the other, and whatever fell on, on whatever goat became the scapegoat, and the other one became the, the other goat. And it said Aaron shall bring the goat which the Lord's fell and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which he is for himself and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. 
But before all this, he has to take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, and his hands full of sweet incense, beaten small, and bring it within the veil. Now I find it interesting as well that it was to be beaten small. It was to be ground out to give up more of, more of the essence, more, more smoke, I guess you could say. And it would cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony that he die not. And he shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle with, with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. And then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people. And bring his blood within the veil and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock. And sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. And he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions in all their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And it says there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place. And until he come out. And have made an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. And he shall go out before the altar that is before the Lord and make an atonement for it. And shall take of the blood of the bullock and of the blood of the goat and put it upon the horns of the altar round about. And he shall sprinkle with the blood upon it with his fingers seven times and cleanse it. And hallow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he had made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over them all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions in their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. Now I find it very interesting that he puts both hands upon the head of the goat. You know, anybody that's ever tried to control a goat, though, is going to know that you can't put just one hand on a goat and try and keep it on its head. You would have to grab it by the ears, most likely. <laughs> but he puts both his hands and confesses all of those sins upon a goat. Now, what I'd like to draw your attention as well is it says, to the hand of a fit man. Now, I know may, you may want to envision in, in your mind what, what to you a fit man would mean. You know, what would that mean? You know, is that someone that looks like me? Uh, or is it someone that looks like read. I guess we kind of look alike, so let's find somebody else here. It, it basically, a fit man would not be like handing a goat to pastor, not saying pastor's unfit, but it basically means that someone that is appointed to a task that is capable of being able to do it. That's all that really means. And, and I find it interesting that the English word is a fit man. You know, basically, it, if, you, if you want to envision something as well in thinking of when Christ was taking the Christ cross, excuse me, and there was someone that was grabbed out of the crowd, he obviously was chosen because he was fit and able to carry the burdens of the cross. And I believe that's what this, this symbolizes. But then that goat is then let out into the wilderness. And I find it here, you'll see now in the 23rd verse, now is when Aaron will put on his actual garments that he will normally wear, but he also washes his flesh to put on his garments and come forth and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people to make an atonement for himself and for the people. Now, as we've also read in, in if we skip down there to verse 29, it's supposed to be a statute forever unto you that in the seventh day, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger that sojourneth among you. Now, the year of Jubilee is also mentioned in Leviticus chapter 25, 9, and it was to be commenced on that this day the atonement day was actually on that is when it would have a year of jubilee and be uh, the duties of uh, releasing and would happen on this day in numbers 18 there was the duties and the privileges of the priests and the levites are given and as we've already been in uh, numbers chapter 29 verses 7 through 11 it gives the laws connected with the sacrifices the facts of the holy convocation that there was to be fasting and resting from labor that there was sacrifices of a sin offering burn offerings meal offerings and drink offerings so ezekiel 45 
Now, Ezekiel 45, 18 to the end of the chapter, it represents a number of regulations for the, for the festivals of Israel and the sacrifices. Now, one thing I did find interesting is, is that the Day of Atonement isn't necessarily listed from what I could see in Ezekiel 45 there. So a question that I've asked myself, and I'm sure many of you have, is what, what was the occasion for this day? Now, we know for Passover, you know, it, it's a memorial, you know, and this is the, the day of application. But back when it, when it was first founded, what would, have been a, what would God have brought this forth for? Uh, let, there's a lot of different uh, when discussion upon this. Uh, some of it I found interesting. I did not know, uh, and I... We'll bring it forth today. One of the, the main beliefs is, is that the death of Nadab and Abihu, uh, as we've seen, they died. And that's when God spoke to, to Aaron about how the Holy of Holies was to be treated and such and discussing the Day of Atonement. Um, there's another one, though, for those of you that like uh, to read uh, apocryphal works. Uh, in jo Jubilees chapter 34, verse 17. Is anybody familiar with that? Jubilees 34, 17. It speaks on this. Um, I'll read this here. And basically, uh, you can also reference this back to uh, Genesis uh, 37 as well. And it has to do with uh, Joseph. Uh, let me see here. Verse, I'll be in the book of Jubilees chapter 34. Um, It says, in the, he sent Joseph to learn about the welfare of his brothers from his house to the land of Shechem, and he found them in the land of Dothan. And they dealt treacherously with him and formed a plot against him to slay him. But changing their minds, they sold him to Ishmaelites, merchants. And they brought him down into Egypt, and they sold him to Potiphar, the eunuch of Pharaoh, the chief of the cooks, the priest of the city of Elu. And the sons of Jacob slaughtered a kid and dipped the coat of the Joseph in blood and sent to Jacob the father on the tenth of the seventh month. And he mourned all that night, for they had brought it to him in the evening, and he became feverish with mourning for his death. And he said, An evil beast hath devoured Joseph. And all the members of his house mourned with him that day, and they were grieving and mourning with him all that day. And his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted for his son. And on that day Bilhah heard that Joseph had perished, and she mourned died mourning him, and she was living in Crefati, and Dinah also, his daughter, died after Joseph had perished. And there came these three mornings upon Israel in one month, and they buried Billah over against the tomb of Rachel, and Dinah also, his daughter, they buried there. And he mourned for Joseph one year and did not cease, for he said, let me go down to the grave mourning my son. Verse 18, for this reason it is ordained for the children of Israel that they should afflict themselves on the tenth of the seventh month, on the day that the news which made him weep for Joseph came to Jacob his father, that they should make atonement for themselves thereon with a young goat on the tenth of the seventh month, once a year for their sins. For they had grieved the affection of their father regarding Joseph his son. Now for all of us, and myself included, you can try and cross-reference this back with Genesis 37. And then there's some things that are missing. It mentions no mention of Bilhah dying, nor does it mention Dinah dying and, and such. Uh, they're just things that are left out. Um, I find it an interesting story. Uh, whether there's any actual truth in it or not, hard to say. Uh, I think that in anything, any writings, there can be points of truth, but it is not something that I would take to the bank, nor is it something that I'm going to uh, base that that's why we're here today. I mean, we're here today because God commanded us to be here today, and that is all that I need to know. Amen. Now, there are those that are committed to the, the critical school of the well as Old, Old Testament interpretation, and they find the, the setting for the day actually in the chapters of Ezekiel, verse, chapters 40 through 48. Uh, and as I stated before, they also bring into the fact that the, uh, the year of Jubilee began on the Day of Atonement, and that's referenced in Leviticus 25, uh, verse 9. Now, are there those also who suggest that the Day of Atonement was the conclusion of several New Year observances? That's just a, an opinion. Uh, it's not one that's widely accepted. Um, so what is the purpose of this day? Well, the ritual of the day had one view and goal. And that was to avert the wrath of God for the sins of the past year and to ensure his continued dwelling with us. 
Now the shedding of blood and the sending off of the scapegoat were meant to cleanse the nation, the priesthood, and the sanctuary from sin. And the entire meaning of the sacrificial system reached its climax. And the day has been, it's also been called the Good Friday of the Old Testament. Uh, this day was observed to remind us that in spite of the daily, weekly, and monthly, and on the new moon sacrifices, sin was not fully atoned for. Always the offerer stood a, a distance from God, unable to enter the holy presence of God, typified by the Shekinah cloud over the mercy seat. Now, on this day, the high priest was allowed by God to enter the Holy of Holies with blood as a representative to the people. Now, it's also been said that, uh, that during that day, if one counts it up, that priest would have had to have sprinkled blood, I believe it's 43 times throughout that day. So that's, that's a lot of sprinkling. The basic principle underlying the Day of Atonement is that the offerings for sin throughout the year could not provide for or cover secret sins, the unknown sins. And nevertheless, by these sins, the sanctuary of the people in the land were all rendered unclean. God could not be honored as he deserved under such circumstances. And the Day of Atonement was instituted for the accomplishment annually of a complete atonement of all sin. And that's in Leviticus 16.33. The whole priestly legislation was given its highest expression. God's holiness was recognized and satisfied by sacrifice. And all the ceremonies and the rituals of that day were meant to symbolize as far as could be symbolized, a complete atonement for sin and the utter removal of God's displeasure. The Day of Atonement marked the highest exhibition of the work of the high priest, and in him all the people had access into the presence of God. There was great and is great importance upon the Day of Atonement. It is the only fast day stipulated in Mosaic law. Conceptually, uh, the crucifixion Accounts of the New Testament and the entire epistle to the Hebrews with Paul's letters are directly related to it. And the Day of Atonement was so central and vital to all of Israel that it outlived the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 and the entire loss of the sacrificial system. The observance actually manifested that Israel believed the cleansing of their sins was accomplished by the prescribed rites given by God and that the forgiveness and grace of God were extended to them and formed the basis for our continued fellowship with him as his covenant people. Now, I must ask at this point in time, I, I see I have a little bit of time here. I'm believing fit this in. How many of you this morning performed kaput on your family? Kapahut, actually. Kapahut, sorry, I mispronounced it. Anybody do Kapahoot? Does anybody have a clue what Kapahoot is? Pastor, have you ever heard of Kapahoot? I, I can't say. <laughs> I hadn't either. It's actually spelled like K-A-P-P-A-R-O-T. And what that is, and, and, and I, uh, I was blown away when I read about this. My wife said, you study strange things. But um, basically... What it is, is that the, uh, I'll show you here, you can actually get online if you would like. Now, I'm not condoning this, and don't, nobody think that I'm condoning this. I am not at all. This is something that actually happens, and this is the title that is given to it. Now, these are basically done by what they call the Cossidic Jews, Cossidic uh, meaning pious. Um, and what happens on this day, they believe on the eve is that they take a live chicken and twirl it over the head of their, their spouse, over themselves, over their children. And in doing so, they, they do this three times. Now, and they do it for each individual person. Now, if a wife is pregnant with a child, he first does her with a hen, then he does her with a rooster, and then he does her with a hen as well. So, all of those things, for what? Well, this is what they say. I mean, they actually have a, a large prayer that they do and everything like that. But, uh, it, this is my exchange. This is my substitute. This is my expiation. This rooster shall go to its death, and I shall proceed to a good long life in peace. Now, we think that's, oh, surely that's not happening today. 
In 2019, there was complaint by the uh, animal rights activists because over 50,000 chickens were killed in New York City. So what do they do with these? Well, they kill them and then they offer them to poor people. Now, that's how far they will go in thinking that they find that they believe this act appeases God over them. This sacrifice of a rooster or a hen. Now, it's not done by all people that seek to call themselves Jewish. It's, it's a minute sect, but it's still done and it's been practiced for years. It's not in the Mishnah. It's not in the Talmud. It is, there is no reference whatsoever it is not known where they got it from. It has caused them problems in the past because they would throw the entrails and such out the windows and people thought that they were doing animal sacrifice. Well, duh, yeah. But uh, for, they believe, satanic purposes. So my, my point in bringing that up, I guess you could say, is, is that is how far some people will go seeking to gain in their minds forgiveness, appeasement. They, they honestly believe that that's going to secure for the rest of the, this next year by killing this chicken, everything that they've done wrong is put upon it and they get to go ahead and live free. It, it, it's so anti-Christ, it's, it's, it's very hard to fathom, but it is happening. It truly is happening. So, on our part, the atonement demonstrated godly sorrow for our sins indicated by fasting. Now, I know for us today, it doesn't, fasting seems to be just absolutely terrible. But for those of you that sat through the electricity being off yesterday as well, you realize how we're really a bunch of whiners. I mean, if you, if you were to go back in history from what I've been able to determine, they usually only ate like twice a day. So for them to actually go without food wasn't, wasn't perhaps as big of a deal. It wasn't what the main focus was. I think God was just trying to as well help us to realize that, that the food that we're depriving ourselves of, to be, have the gratefulness to realize that we have something to be deprived of. And it realized the, uh, the purification purification of the sanctuary was defiled by the sins of the Israel. All of our sins defile the sanctuary. An atonement was made for all the transgressions of the congregation. The consciousness of sin in Israel was deepened through the exercises of the day. And God was appeased by these actions for the year just past. Now this day is not without spiritual significance and instruction for us today. And the, the more we compare the rituals of this day with what was accomplished perfectly by Christ on Calvary, the more conviction is confirmed that all the rites of the Day of the Atonement and all the religious appointments in Israel are just shadows preparing for the coming finality of Christ. Now, it's across the board agreed upon that this day was set aside as a fast, but you still have a few that will hold out that it is, was not. Uh, but it quite clearly says in Leviticus 16, verse 29, And this shall be a statute forever unto you, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger that sojourneth among you. Now it is also described as a Sabbath of a solemn rest, or literally a Sabbath of sabbatism a most solemn Sabbath, or a Sabbath of sabbatical observance when no work was allowed. And that's referencing Numbers 29.7. So if we were to break down the contents of Leviticus 16, um, it could be divided into four sections. Uh, verses 1 through 10 basically have to do with the personal preparations by Aaron for the rites of that day. And it also has to do with the animals for the sacrifice, the clothing, and the bathing of Aaron. Now, verses 11 through 24, the second part, basically, were the, the ceremonies described in detail of what was entailed in that day. And thirdly, we have additional directions 
for the ceremonies of that day. And the last part, and that would be verses like 25 through 28, 29 through 34 had to do with directions for the congregation. So what were the rites of the day? Now they were complex, but they all had meaning for the ultimate purpose of the day, and that was the atonement sacrifice according to God's specific appointment. And we've already seen that the feast was so important that even through the years, later observances added elements to the original arrangement. So we're, what I'd like to do is kind of examine what, what I've seen summaries of what they said entailed the early observance. And then we'll look at the, the later observance of the Day of Atonement. Now, it is said that the early observance on this day, the high priest removed his official garments of glory and beauty. And he clothed himself in white linen as a penitent with the rest of the nation. And then he carried out the ceremonies of the day. And now he offered a bullock for a sin offering for himself and the priests. And then with a censer of live coals from the altar of incense, he entered into the Holy of Holies to fill the compartment with incense. He then sprinkled the blood of the bullock on the mercy seat and on the floor before the Ark of the Covenant. And he cast lots over two live goats brought by the people slaying one of the goats as a sin offering for the nation. And he took the blood inside the veil and sprinkled it as before, thus making atonement for the holiest place. He confessed the sins of the people over the live goat, placing his hands on its head. He sent the live goat away into the wilderness and the live goat, as we've already discussed this morning, was called the scapegoat. And symbolically, it carried away the sins of the people. And then he, the high priest, would clothe himself in his usual apparel, usual apparel, and he offered now a burnt offering for himself and one for the people with a fat of the sin offering. And the flesh of the bullock and the goat were burned outside the camp. That is how it is believed that the atonement was originally done, the, the rites of the atonement. Now, in later days, it, they say that the feast gained in significance. So... And it was greatly enlarged. The high priest, they say, had to bathe five times. And they say he had to have ten washings, which washings was washings of his hands. So the purpose for the, the bathing, they made it more and more ritualistic. It's like the, the pomp and circumstance of the time made it more holy. Now they still did the fasting, which included no eating, no drinking, no washing, no anointing, putting on footwear, they even said. Uh, and they also had no marital relations on that day. Now, they also had the little children and the sick were always exempt from the fast. Now, the source for the tradition, how many of us have heard, and I, perhaps I've even stated it before, of a rope being tied to the high priest? Are we familiar with that? A rope being tied to the high priest. Where did that come from? I mean, I haven't found it in Scripture. Have you found it in Scripture, Reed? Don't recall. Yeah, don't recall. Well, I, I, did, I did some digging because I was, well, was curious. The bells you'll find. Uh, the bells, we'll, we'll get into that here in a second. But anyway, so where did this, the source for the tradition that the high priest had a rope tied to his ankle come from? It comes from what is called the Zohar. And that is actually re related to Kabbalah, uh, which is kind of a, a mystic form of Judaism. Now, in one passage, the Zohar relates that as the high priest enters the Holy of Holies, a knot of rope of gold hangs from his leg from fear, perhaps he would die in the Holy of Holies and they would need to pull him out with this rope. And that was uh, taken from the, uh, I believe it's pronounced the Akarei Mot, and that was verse 198. Most Christian sources do agree that there's no true historical evidence written or otherwise that the priest, high priest actually had a rope around his leg to be drug out. So, and I would have to concur that I, I would agree with that because I would think that God would take care of the Holy of Holies. I mean, if he brought down fire upon the sons of uh, Aaron, he could quite surely keep his mercy seat clean. Now, so in Exodus chapter 28, in verse 33 and 35, it specified that bells and knitted pomegranates. And I have 
absolutely no real idea what a knitted pomegranate would look like, quite personally. But they were to be worn on the hem of the high priest's garment so that the sound of the bells will be heard when he enters the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out. Now, it's kind of interesting, too, because we just envision bells and stuff hanging around. But if you read those verses there that I told you there in Exodus 28, 33 through 35, you'll actually find that there was colors that were represented and how they were placed. So it's, it's, it's intriguing. I do not know the significance of it, but uh, it, is a, it is something that is significant to our, our Heavenly Father. Now, because the high priest was the central personality throughout the ceremonies, he t they said that he took up residence in the temple seven days before the festival and that he rehearsed the ceremonies he was to perform. Now, I don't know how you could rehearse the ceremonies you were going to perform when you can't go into the Holy of Holies without the blood and not on the appointed day. Uh, but that is what they said. And they also said that on the day, on the eve of the day that he would keep an all night vigil and there would people be people designated to keep him awake. I think that's a lot of Jewish fable where they've tried to glorify themselves more than the truth of what perhaps occurred. But in looking at their current situation of how these false people that call themselves Jews conduct themselves now, it's not entirely impossible, I believe, much like I've showed with a, with a the kapahut that they believe in, in themselves more than I believe that they actually believe in the, the cleansing blood of, of God through His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the sacrifice for the nation was still a goat chosen by Lot from my two identical animals, and the goat was slain, and his blood sprinkled over the ark seven times, and the veil and the horns of the altar. Um, now, as I stated before, they claimed that the high priest sprinkled blood 43 times on this day. And at the conclusion, they say, of the ceremonies of the day, so great was the relief of the people that the high priest had lived, that obviously their atonement had been accepted, their appeasement had been made. So the people would follow the high priest to his home and they would have a great feast. And they also say that the young men and the maidens danced in the vineyards. So one takeaway that I would have from that is sometimes I think that we, we, this is a very somber day. It is definitely one of which we're to reflect upon and, and realize the, the sacrifice that has been made by our Savior Jesus Christ, but also that we are to be a thankful people, a grateful people. And to give praise unto, unto God that, it, that no matter how uh, deprived we may try and sit and look in our pews because we've skipped breakfast, that uh, this is a, a much higher day and one that we, we shouldn't let uh, the lack of food possess our thoughts about. So what I'd like to do is obviously we've been all over. Let's go to Hebrews if we would. And let's begin in Hebrews chapter 4, verses uh, 14. Hebrews chapter 4. And we'll read in beginning in verse, uh, where did I start here? Verse 10. Uh, actually, I'm sorry, uh, beginning at verse 14. And I'll go into uh, verse 10 of chapter 5. So, and it says, seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let, it hold, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but within all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, that he himself also is compassed with infirmity? And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sins." And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, and was Aaron, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made in high priest, but that he made, that he said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. 
As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all that obey him. Though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He suffered not for the consequences of his actions, but for my sin, your sin, and our sin collectively as a people. Now John fifteen thirteen states, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man may lay down his life for his friends. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And that was in Mark 10, chapter 45. Now, if we could continue on in Hebrews, let's go to chapter 9. And I'd like to read chapter 9, and we'll read verses 11 through 22. Now, in Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11, it says, But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifying to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God, and for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. For if a testament it is of force after men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood." And without shedding of blood is no remission. In verse 28, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Now for something... I'll read one, one last verse from, from Hebrews, and, and that would be in Hebrews 10, 26. It says, For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifices for sins. In verse 31 as well, in Hebrews chapter 10, is quite chilling, chilling to me, and that is that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Amen. Now for something for us to reflect upon as we grow quite near to communion this afternoon. I'd like you to Exodus chapter 20 verse 7. And we all know it is the third of the Ten Commandments. And it reads as such, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. The name. What's that? What is it that we should not take in vain? Now in Exodus chapter 3 verse 13 it states, And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and say unto, shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. I am that I am signifies God's absolute beginning or absolute being. No beginning, no ending, no becoming, no dependence on anything outside myself. 
That's my name. Everywhere you see Lord with small caps in the King James, King James Version, that's what you should think. Over 6,000 times in the Old Testament. But the very fact that the name of God has a meaning reminds us that in the Bible, someone not, someone's name tells decisive things about the person. They are not mere labels that you help to distinguish one person from another. Much like we use our names today. We have Nathan, we have Reed, we have Martin, we have Caleb. What's in a name? Exodus 34, verse 14. For thou shalt worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Names are not mere labels that help you distinguish one person from another. They are an expression of a person's reality. We also have Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15. It states, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. In Isaiah 9 verse 6, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And we also have in Revelations chapter 9, verses 13 and 16, the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That is who he is, his reality. He's the Word of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. So those are his name. I am Jamie, son, grandson, husband, dad, grandpa, provider, mechanic, minister. Those are my names, my reality of who I am. So what does it mean to take in vain? What does it truly mean to take the name in vain? And if we remember the rest of that verse, God will not hold you guiltless. So what does it mean to treat God, His name, in our thoughts and our feelings, or our words, or our actions in vain? It means futile, empty, pointless, meaningless. In Malachi 3, verse 14, we have it said where, Ye have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept His ordinance, and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? Many people will tell you it is vain to keep the Day of Atonement. It is pointless, futile. Serve God, futile, pointless, and empty. There's no profit in serving God is basically what that means. It's vain, in vain, futile, pointless, empty. No profit, no success, you just wasted your time. So the true question becomes, how do you take the name of God, the expressions of His reality, into your thoughts and into your emotions and into your words and into your actions in such a way that your thoughts Feelings and words and actions are futile, empty, pointless, and wasted. Now, Jesus gives us a double answer on this, and it's found in Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 through 9. And he's not leaving the Old Testament, actually. He's actually quoting from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. And it says, This people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This is about worship. But what it teaches applies to all of life, because for the Christian, all of life is worship. In our reference, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, or 1 and 2. And actually, if we could turn, let's just, I have a little bit of time here. Let's turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, that's you and I, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, it says, whatever you do in word or deed, 
Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And we also have Colossians chapter 3, verse 17 as well. And it says, Jesus says there are two things that happen to cause the worship of God. The name of God to be, whoop, sorry. Yeah. Jesus says there are two things that happen to cause us to, to worship the name of God in an empty, pointless, futile way. And firstly, it says that people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And that's because the heart is emptied of affections for God, for his name, love, admiration, reverence, cherishing, treasuring. And I think that's something we have to be very careful, especially in our daily morning prayer services and such. It's very easy to make that service empty, pointless, and, and futile. Because we've lost the love, the admiration, the reverence that we need to hold as Christians. And secondly... The thing that makes the worship in vain is, is that they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So basically the words, statements about God that they have emptied of God's truth and replaced with human opinions. So when the heart is emptied of our affections for God and words are emptied of the truth of God, all of our thoughts, our words, and all of our emotions and all acts that we do are empty, pointless, and vain. They're futile meaningless. So therefore, to take the name of God in vain is to take up the expression of God's reality into our thoughts or emotions or words or actions when the truth of God has gone out of them and true affections for God are missing. So essentially God is saying, don't treat me, my name, as empty, futile, pointless, trivial, inconsequential, and insignificant. Don't let your words be empty of my truth. Don't let your hearts be empty of your affections. Revere me, love me, trust me, treasure me. Satisfy your heart with me. Now, ever notice that nobody ever swears, oh, Krishna, oh, my Buddha. Why? Why? Why is it always the name of Jesus Christ or God? What power is there in the name of Krishna? What power is there in the name of Buddha? None. There is power in the name of Jesus Christ. And it can be used incorrectly. But that's something to think on. There's power in the name. Psalm 71 verse 9. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of thy name. And deliver us and purge away our sins for thy name's sake. We also have Philippians chapter 2 verse 9. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Now I ask, am I a prophet at the beginning of this lesson? And I pray that you've contemplated as I have. If indeed am I, are you profitable to Jesus? Being profitable to Jesus will show us true love for our brethren. Now, 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 states, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. It says, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they must give account. We must give account. That they may do it with joy and not with grief. For that is unprofitable to you, for you. Now I guarantee you, you can ask any mother in here. A mother loves a baby even when they bite her. She isn't happy, and she may discipline that child, but her love never wavers for that child, even after it bites her. The discipline for the child isn't throwing the baby against the wall, but sometimes a flick of the cheek or a swat of the bottom. In this congregation, which are you? The biting baby? Or the loving, disciplining, forgiving mother. 
The real question to ask yourself is which one profits you? In closing, let us turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. And let us read this together here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. May God bless and keep each and every one of us this day. May we be thankful and grateful for the merciful goodness which God has shown upon us in sending His Son, the true scapegoat, the true sacrifice. And as we come together this evening and, and celebrate the communion service, I pray that all of us will be able to come with a clear mind and a good conscience towards God, knowing that by His Son we have redemption. We are His people. And He's called all of us forth, no matter what state we may be in, perhaps we're all here by His design, His purpose, His calling. And may God work out His will in our lives. Thank you for your time today.